Hello, and welcome to WVU Reads. I'm your host, Jeff Hilsebeck, and it has been way too long. I'm sorry. Life, man. (laughs) But the important thing is that we're back, so welcome back. My guest today is Rosemary Hathaway, Associate Professor of English here at WVU, folklorist, and author of the new book, Mountaineers Are Always Free, Heritage, Descent, and a West Virginia Icon. Rosemary, welcome to WVU Reads. Thank you, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. So tell me about your relationship with your father. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it actually is is in the book. Well, I know. No, I'm actually, I'm only half kidding, and I did want to start with your dad, um, if that's okay. Sure. So he graduated from WVU. Yes, he did. And plays an important role yeah. In the book? Yes, In a he way. Does. In fact, yeah. I, I even feel like he's one of the book's muses. Absolutely. Is that, is that fair to say? I think that's very fair to say. I think in some ways he, you know, and his experiences at WVU are what kind of led me down this path in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about kind of what role he plays in the book and, yeah. and tell us about Trinity Hall. Okay. And, and in particular, those uh, homecoming decorations that you write about. Yeah, yeah. So, um, my dad grew up in uh, Grantsville in Calhoun County, West Virginia. Um, in the, He was born in 1924, which seems a million years <laughs> ago. Um, and when he and and was drafted into the army during mm-hmm. World War II and went and um, served in the army in North Africa and Italy and then like many 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 men of that generation um, came home after the war and went to college mm-hmm. in the, starting in the fall of 1946 and it just you know I don't think I really appreciated that piece of the story so much when I was growing up and hearing his stories but I definitely appreciated the antics that he mm-hmm. and his fellow residents of Trinity Hall got up to. So just some background. Um, Trinity Hall was a, a boarding house that was run by the Episcopal Church that stood where the current Trinity Episcopal Church on on Willie Street now okay. is. At the time, it was slated for demolition because it was so run down, but because there was such a huge housing shortage mm-hmm. with all the GIs coming to campus after the war, they decided to keep it open for a few years. So, um, my dad decided to, you know, live there, even mm-hmm. though he was not Episcopalian. Um, and uh, it was just a house full of you know, GIs and mm-hmm. kind of clever people, many of whom were um, first-generation college students, uh, many of whom were uh, the sons of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe, um, who were only able to go to college, really, because of the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that part of the story was sort of lost on me as yeah. a kid. Uh, what What struck me was, you know, just all the you know, crazy things that they did living mm-hmm. in this house. So, um, in the book, uh, I talk in one chapter about that moment in the history of the Mountaineer after World War II and the ways in which, because of the kind of changing demographics of the student body, there were lots of students on campus suddenly who did not really think of themselves as Mountaineers mm-hmm. in some ways. Um you know, because they were first-generation college students, because they were, um, you know, the children of, of immigrants. Um, and so I really kind of look at the ways in which these sort of newcomers tried to 
you know, change the image of the mountaineer yeah. to, to fit their own needs. And a lot of that has to do with the sort of trickster side mm-hmm. of the mountaineer figure, um, which was much more prevalent at that point in time than it is now. You know, it was much more of a hillbilly kind of figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and just all the stuff that they kind of got up to. Yeah. Uh, in Trinity Hall, I think, was very much in that vein. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the book, I talk about um, them constructing homecoming decorations for um, you know, fall homecoming in both 1947 and 1948. And both of those decorations were very much hillbilly themed. Mm-hmm. The one for the first year was this giant, you know, hillbilly that they built out of pipe and wood and painted and made it look like this hillbilly mountaineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they set it up so that it, they had a hose up on the third floor mm-hmm. so that every once in a while they could make it spit like it was spitting tobacco mm-hmm. um, and had this sort of reel to reel tape running with a, you know, kind of looping monologue about uh-huh. being a mountaineer and being a hillbilly and that kind of thing. I love reading and hearing about pranks that are so incredibly oh. elaborate. Yes. And, and involve all this complex, these complex engineering feats. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, a number of the guys who lived there were engineering majors. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them had done, you know, kind of technical jobs in the during the war, yeah. too. So, you know, my dad still, all those years later, had pages and pages of the specs for this thing. That this wasn't like they just <laughs> sort of got together one uh-huh. night and said, well, what if we do this? What if we do this? I mean, they actually, like, wrote it all out with the dimensions, exactly what materials they were going to yeah. need, how it was going to work. Um, See, that that. <laughs> belongs in a folk art museum. Rosemary yes. and I were talking about folk art yeah. museums before we were started recording this interview yeah. and how there needs to be an Appalachian folk art museum. And yes. It should have No, you're absolutely right. It should have the plans in it. Yeah, cuz it's it's a shame that we don't have the actual decorations. Uh-huh. I don't, you know, I'm sure those ended up in a landfill somewhere. Right. Um, but yeah, the plans themselves, I think, are very And this involved artistic. like breaking into a power plant or something uh, like well, that, that or was the, that that was, was the, the next, next year? year yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right. So, uh, yeah, the first year they were sort of realizing that in, this thing was huge. I mean, it like went across the whole front of the house. So it was probably 20 feet wide and maybe 10 or 15 feet tall. And they re- and it, they were going to make it out of, out of plywood, but they realized they were going to need something pretty sturdy to hold it onto the to mount it onto mm-hmm. the front of the house. They thought, well, you know, pipe would work. We should get some pipe. But, you know, these are broke college students. Right. Um, <laughs> but one of them worked at the Bureau of Mines, the U.S. Bureau of Mines, which I guess was down on Beatrice Avenue somewhere at the time. And he said, well, we got all kinds of pipes <laughs> sitting around at the Bureau of Mines. Um, we'll just come and get some, mm. right? Uh, so, yes, they acquired the pipe uh-huh. uh, in, a, in, a, in a rather... Illegal fashion, uh-huh. we'll say that. <laughs> um, yeah, they, but they they did it in you know, which I think is also kind of a classic sort of trickster behavior, right? That it, they got illegal, down. but as I recall, it wasn't particularly. They weren't too quiet about it. No. They like turned on the lights. Or yes, something. exactly. They realized, you know, this is going to look a lot worse <laughs> if we sneak in there in the dark to get this mm-hmm. pipe. So we're going to go down there at eleven o'clock at night and just turn on all the lights mm-hmm. and load this pipe up in somebody's car and take it away, because um, that's going to look a lot less suspicious than you know sneaking around in the dark. So yeah, and I think that kind of is so fitting with that trick. Trickster yeah. image, like. Yeah. Well, I want to. I want to ask you about the hillbilly and the trickster and the frontiersman. But, but I, uh, before we leave this, um, that that part of the book, just because I like those passages, yeah, so much. Um, and the book is about 
as I understand it, kind of shifting ideas yes. about the mountaineer, and, right. and also the way you were describing your your father and his housemates, that yeah. it's not only about those shifting ideas, but about who can sort of lay claim yes. to the mountaineer. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, th- uh, that speaks to me too as a transplant, yes. you know, because yeah. uh, it it feels very um, remote to me the ma- sort of mountaineer spirit. Yeah, um, because you know I don't I have no relationship to the state, and it's it's the kind of a state where you have to have a even if your parent or, right. or certainly if your grandparent, right. sort of unclear who gets to be right who gets to a lay mountaineer. That claim. Yeah, um, and the book really deals in a lot of detail. Yeah. With that issue that I think is very live. Yeah. Um, yeah. For a lot of people, particularly in Morgantown. Yes. Probably. Yeah. Um, so uh, so let's talk about maybe the hillbilly and the trickster and the frontiersman. Okay. So those are three, at different times, the mountaineer sort of fits into those different categories. Is that right? Right, right. And I think that, you know, and I think it's the mountaineer has always kind of had a foot in both of those camps, mm-hmm. right? That it's always sort of... At, at its at its root, um, had both this kind of, you know, upstart, rabble-rousing kind of trickster side, mm-hmm. but then also this kind of noble, self-sufficient frontiersman side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's sort of what has fascinated me about that, mm-hmm. about the figure of the mountaineer, is how is it that these two seemingly opposite characters right can exist in the same figure the frontiersman and the, and the hillbilly yeah yeah uh-huh. exactly you know how is it that, that we've managed to marry those in a way and that they've stayed together for so yeah. long i mean at different times i think because of what's going on historically or contextually and also because of the university's intervention there have been you know more deliberate efforts to focus on one or the other um and yet even now, when I think we tend to think of the of the mountaineer more in that kind of frontiersman mold, yeah, um, there's still that element of of the trickster or the hillbilly mm-hmm. that's a part of that figure. Mm-hmm. A big part of your research for the book, as I understood it, was interviewing mountaineer the mountaineers themselves, right. the, the people who have embodied this right. spirit, whether it's yes. the trickster or the hillbilly or the frontiersman. Yes, and so I'm curious. If they tended to identify with one or the other, if there was any correlation with time period and if there was any kind of general trends in terms of, okay, during this period, they really thought of themselves as more of the frontiersmen or... Yeah, or, yeah, oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think in the early days, so the the Mountaineer kind of became the university's official mascot in, I think, 1934. Um, and then Mountain Honorary started officially selecting the person in 1937. So, you know, that's, it's kind of been under the university's control in some ways for for a long time. But at least in the early days, there was a lot less management, I guess Uh I should say, of the mountaineer, you know, that the mountaineer could do a lot more than they can nowadays. And I think, in part, that's because at that point, they really were just going to games and kind of being a, a cheerleader, essentially. Right, right. You know, certainly the the older mountaineers that I interviewed had many more stories about, um, you know, the same kind of thing, sort of pranks that they played, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, a lot of them 
had kind of a shtick that they would do with other mascots, like you know, the one one guy who was a mountaineer, and I think 1959 um, told me a story about how you know he and the Pit Panther you know, made up this routine where he was going to chase the pit panther up the goalpost and then pretend to shoot him with the musket. Right, and then he fell right. out. And um, there are a lot more stories like yeah. that. And, you know, it just seemed to be a much looser kind of um, system pretty much up until I would say, you know, like the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the point at which the university kind of stepped in and, um made the mountaineer well in part i think part of this too i think is an is an economic story right that mm-hmm. for many years the being the mountaineer you just did it you didn't get any compensation for it mm. there was no scholarship attached to it you didn't even get reimbursed for your mileage um so i think at that point the university was like you know we really don't have any yeah you know carrot to right. <laughs> to hold out um but once the university sort of created a scholarship for the mountaineer and started you know, putting its own funds into travel and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Then I think they, you know, wanted to have a lot more control yeah. over the, the the mountaineer's behavior and persona and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you see the mountaineer kind of turn into more the role that they have nowadays, which again, I think still combines that trickster and, yeah. you know, culture hero figure in that, you know, the mountaineer today is still expected to, get people, people, you know, fired up at football games and basketball games and whatever. But then they also have to turn around and go out to a high school and give a speech or go to an alumni association event and raise money. Right. Um, So, you know, I think once that sort of PR piece of it came in, then... You know, it's the, hard. It's yeah. It's a it's, lot to ask of students. It's really, I mean, that's what amazes me. I think I don't know how anybody who's you know twenty twenty one years old can you know can do this yeah. and be a full time student mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Um. I mean, it really takes. It's a huge time commitment, yeah. and also it sounds like just a lot of a sort of. Um, Emotional yeah. pressure if you yeah. feel like you're representing not just the university, right, but the entire state, but the entire state. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and a huge responsibility right. too that the university is you know expecting you to kind of be right the the front person for yeah. all of this. It's it's really pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's that's changed significantly over the years. Um, I think you know another another change that I talk about in the book that was really significant was um, so you know that hillbilly mountaineer was pretty prevalent you know and I would say the more dominant aspect of the image through probably the first couple decades of the mountaineers official life you know through Mm -hmm. the 30s 40s into the 1950s Um, but then in the 1950s with the popularity of Davy Crockett um, the Disney show and just in general that kind of craze that that created about right. you know everybody having a coonskin cap and right. you know um, running around in buckskins. I think that was the moment when the university decided, okay, this is the direction we want to go in. Right, right? we're going to latch on to this right now. Right, because um, every it's it's popular, people like it. People, oh, going in the direction of the hillbilly. Oh no, going in the direction uh, of the pushing of against the, that. Yeah, pushing against that. Popular right. Image. Yeah, and sort of saying, uh-huh. oh, you know. Everybody likes Davy Crockett. Everybody gets that. Let's right. let's put all our eggs in that basket. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. So Davy Crockett was kind of a f- 
frontiersman. Yes. I see. He wasn't yeah. the kind of comic. He wasn't the comic hillbilly. Yeah. I mean, that's what's odd, isn't it? I mean, that, that we, you know, I think especially those of us in literature understand mm-hmm. that Davy Crockett also has this sort of life as this sort of comic figure, yeah. um, especially with the Crockett almanacs, but because of the Disney series and them sort of painting him to be this sort of noble frontiersman yeah. and patriot, okay. um, I think that was in the late, you know, in the late 1950s. I mean, especially when you think about everything else that's going on, I think that was sort of like, wow, everybody likes this. This seems to be the direction things are going in. Let's right, latch right. on to that. Right. Yeah. And I think part of it too was, you know, to because of that fear of the perception, you know, this constant fear that we have, I think, in West Virginia and in Appalachia more broadly about what do people outside the state and outside the region mm-hmm. think of us, mm-hmm. right? So if we can sort of put up this figure that reminds people of Davy Crockett and then they associate us with that, that's a lot better That's a lot better than this association we're more afraid of that they're going right. to think we're all hillbillies. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of the – material conditions that give rise to these different mm-hmm. mountaineers. There's just this very sobering fact you mentioned early in the book, um, which I think is part of the story, certainly of the state and and of the mountaineer, uh, which is just this destruction of forests. So that right. in 1870, there's 10, millions, 10 million acres of of forest in West Virginia, which by 1920 is completely decimated by the timber industry. Yeah. And with that, uh, and the loss of all of that forest, um, it's, uh, the loss of a lot of traditional ways of living. Right. Uh, in the state in terms of, um, living off the land, hunting, trapping, um, also gathering herbs and, uh, and things like that. It's sort of folk medicine. Right, right. Um, and, and also, when those go away, sort of all, these alternative economies go away. Right. Too. Right. That are based on bartering or I imagine, you mentioned Lewis Hyde, a sort of gift economies. Yes. Um, and everything becomes sort of thoroughly capitalist. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. And that there's a racial dimension to that. And yes. the book sort of slides from that, telling that story to, you say, quote, the, the, um, the abandonment of that way of life created an enormous vacuum that could only be filled with nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And that nostalgia, I feel, I think the book suggests, is dangerous and conservative, inherently conservative. Yes. And brings with it various kinds of uh, forms of discrimination and, yeah. and oppression. So um, I wanted to talk about that nostalgia, which again, I, I understand you as, as linking to this creation of a sort of conflated sense of whiteness mm-hmm. so could you just talk about that a little bit maybe? yeah, I, yeah. Was, I, went, I went on for a while there that's okay I, no i i that was another thing that really kind of surprised me in kind of doing the background work to kind of figure out the the history behind all of this was realizing that nostalgia has kind of always been there mm-hmm. right you know that even mm-hmm. reading you know in, in another place i talk about um joseph doddridge who was a right a west virginia writer writing that piece about the the fight yeah the between fight the between the dandy and the and, and, the, and, and the backwoodsman and, the backwoodsman. and he's writing that in 
20 something, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. And already, right, he, that, that little dialogue is set up that the, the backwoodsman is already this kind of relic of right. the olden days. Right. And gosh, if we could only go back to those times. And, and that was shocking to me, you know, because mm-hmm. I guess, you know, growing up reading Little House on the Prairie and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> those kind of things, you know, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Like right. 19, you know, the mid 19th century is exactly so right. Um, but not in this part of right. the country. But realizing how quickly that became a, nost- a nostalgic figure mm-hmm. um, and then being able to trace that nostalgia right up to the present. Right. Um, that that's always kind of, I think that's, I mean, to me, that's sort of the danger of the frontier of, of leaning too heavily on the frontiersman side mm-hmm. of the mountaineers image is mm-hmm. that that guy has always been a nostalgic figure. Uh-huh. Right. Whereas I think the hillbilly is always the one who's kind of more in the moment, hmm. right? More in the present. Hmm. More di- yeah. It's the more dynamic aspect yeah. of the figure, yeah. anyway. And, and consequently, sort of less fixed in terms of what we, the qualities we associate yeah, exactly. with that figure. Yeah, I think so. And, and is more capable of, of disruption than the other one. Because all the mountaineers have been white, and yes. all but two of them have been men. Yes, right? yes exactly. Exactly. Um, Which is crazy. <laughs> it is kind of crazy. It really when is. you sort of step away from that for a second, it is. given how diverse a population yeah certainly now but for quite some time yeah for quite some time um yeah and i think it's something that i mean you know often when people when i talk to people about that they're like well but the state is you know 97 percent white or whatever the the numbers mm-hmm. are now but the student body isn't mm-hmm. right and yes we may still not be as as racially as ethnically diverse as you know some other campuses mm-hmm. but Still, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 not out of the question that that could happen, but I think, again, it's that nostalgia piece yeah. that kind of prevents and the frontiersman image that sort of prevents people from, you know, people of color or, you know, LGBTQ students or whoever of thinking, you know, I could I could be the mountaineer, yeah, right, um, and you know, even the two women who have served faced. Tremendous harassment. Yeah, what about kinds of that. things? I know you write about that. Yeah, um, I mean, I am just <laughs> in awe of what Natalie Tennant yeah. went through as the yeah. first woman mountaineer. I mean, I knew about some of it from reading issues of the DA mm-hmm. um, from that time, but you know, discovered even more when I talked to her about it. You know, people would throw things at her. They would yell obscenities at her. You know, it just was, and it was relentless. It wasn't like it was just for the first few weeks after her selection was announced or, you know, the first couple of games of the football season. I mean, it literally went on the entire year. Yeah. Um, And I just don't know how she put up with that. But again, I was surprised that when Rebecca Durst was chosen, it wasn't quite as vitriolic a reaction, but she still got harassed in other ways, right? There it was more, I think, sexual harassment, right? Um, Where, you know, people are like, well, at least we have a hot woman, Mm -hmm. right? You know? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think we still have a long way to go to break out of that notion that the Mountaineer has to look a certain way. Yeah, and it really is a shame that it hasn't happened more quickly. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit, because I wanted to ask you about your designation as a folklorist and yeah. about folklore as a discipline. Um, and I think just the, I'm just curious about what it means to be a folklorist. And um, you you sort of talk a lot about 
the differences between a f- uh, between a folklorist and a historian yeah. in the book, and it almost sort of reads to me as a kind of anxiety yeah. that you're not a historian, <laughs> right? And oh, you yeah. embrace that. Um, you're this other thing, yeah. Um, so, what is this other thing? Yeah, that's a, yeah. It's a good question. Um, yeah, and I did I did have a lot of anxiety about that because at a certain point, especially when I was doing a lot of the archival research. Um, like I'm, I, you know, I'm not a historian. I'm sort of teaching mm-hmm. myself historiography here, and I don't even mm-hmm. know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> um, but I think at a certain point, I realized, but I'm not, I'm not really writing a history, right? Uh, this is not history. This is, um, this is a folklore book, right? Mm-hmm. This is a, and for me, that means it's a book about. Um, Stories, right? It's a book about narratives. It's about um, the ways that we kind of use narratives and kind of larger cultural patterns to structure and explain our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I kind of realized that, I was like, okay, I can do this because mm-hmm. I can figure out a way to make this, you know, historical data and information that I've collected help me kind of explain. Mm-hmm the folkloric aspects of this story, which have much more to do with, um, uh, you know, the a larger sense of identity in the state and the region and how that gets created um, in on a, not in an official way, right. but, you know, on the ground, mm-hmm. right? How are people actually constructing this, these ideas about themselves? Yeah. Um, what are the stories that they tell to sort of create that identity and to sustain that identity or to disrupt that identity? Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that's, and, and that's a lot of what I think folklorists these days focus on. I, I you know, I certainly know from years of teaching folklore classes that, you know, the perception of people outside the field is that, oh, or, you know, it's, it's about folk tales and, mm-hmm. um, and maybe we're going to talk about folk popular dancing, mythology. right. Popular mythology, uh, maybe urban legends. Um, but that's about it. And yeah. it's, it's, it can be a hard sell to explain to people like, well, yeah, that's, that's one little corner yeah. of what folklorists do. Um, but really these days folklorists are much more interested in kind of, um, looking at the dynamics of how groups get created mm-hmm. and again and the ways in which they sort of uh, create a sort of narrative about themselves mm-hmm. and the sort of material things that they use to uh, kind of perform that identity. Right. Um, and so in that sense, while the book may not seem like folklore uh, to to the to the typical reader, right. um, it's very informed by the way folklorists operate mm-hmm. today in terms of really thinking about groups and networks mm-hmm. and performance mm-hmm. and how information gets transmitted informally mm-hmm. uh, between people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so, so. A lot of them sounds like a lot of the materials are the same kinds of materials that a historian would be using. You're looking at. You're reading through old newspapers, like old copies of the DA. You're right. doing interviews with people. You're looking at uh, advertisements and yeah. stories, popular stories, official histories, unofficial histories. But 
that the 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 goal is is a little bit different. It sounds like than yeah. a more traditional historian. Yeah, exactly. and you're in the English department, of course. You're not in the history department. Right, right, exactly. Um, and yeah, thank goodness for that. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think you're right. In some ways, it's the same raw materials, right, including oral histories, right, the interviews that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the lens for looking at them and the way that I'm putting that material together and interpreting it mm-hmm. is is fundamentally, I think, mm-hmm. really different. Yeah. And maybe these disciplinary boundaries are kind of bullshit anyway. Yeah. And and again, that's, that's what I love about being a folklorist mm-hmm. is that um, – you know, I mean, there are departments of folklore at a very few universities mm-hmm. in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, people are either in English departments or they're mm-hmm. in anthropology departments. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always been kind of an interdisciplinary yeah. study. Yeah. Um, it's always had a foot in those things, and it's always kind of been drawing on uh, sociology and psychology and history and um, you know other disciplines as well to kind yeah. of interpret the materials and and that's what I really enjoy about it I, th- I think to a lot of people it sounds sort of loosey-goosey and you know like well you can just do whatever you want mm-hmm. um, but there really is you know when you the, the fundamental principles of we're talking about uh, informal cultural constructions right. and how those happen and how they you know, how people sort of coalesce yeah. around them, you know, that's yeah. kind of the fundamental yeah. thing that brings it all together. Well, and I think, I mean, the way you're describing it, 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 it sounds like every university and, and, and institution should have a folklorist on hand because uh, it makes me think, so Bob Bridges, the curator of the art museum, was here last semester, and I asked him what a curator is, and he said, well, uh, it's officially the, the keeper of the collection, yeah, which is a little bit how you're describing a folklorist, yeah. particularly an on-site folklorist. Like, you are the keeper of the mythology. Yeah. You know, you have this history. Yeah. And you and you have these sort of interpretive skills to understand. Well, when the university brands the mountaineer this way, there's this history behind that. Yeah, and there are these reasons that they're doing it. And when someone else talks about the mountaineer this other way, and and the mus- the mountaineer's costume and the gun and all right. of that, right? You sort of have it, have an, a way to interpret that that nobody else does. Yeah. So it's a very powerful position. I think it's really cool we yeah. have a folklorist. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I totally <laughs> agree that every university should have a folklorist. Um, for all those reasons you described, I think that um, what folklorists do is just, I mean, it's it's obviously related to what people in literature studies or in cultural studies mm-hmm. do, but it's also fundamentally different, I mm-hmm. think, in the sense that, um, you know, we're much more concerned with you know, rather than strictly doing archival research, you know, like, let's go out and talk to people about this and find out what's going on and let them tell us what's happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, yeah. And so I think that makes it a very different kind of discipline, too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that, you know, universities that have had folklorists really, you know, especially if they've got a folklore archive, I mean, it's, you know... What a tremendous wealth of information you've yeah. got there from all these student projects, the, right. you know, a history of of the university that you could not get in any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree, and that's yeah. that's what I love about it. And it's mm-hmm. it's 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 not a discipline that's for everybody, but um, 
Well, it sounds like it's for a lot of people. Your course is very popular. It yeah, sounds like yeah, your folklore well, course. Yeah, I think because I think part of it is that people realize that this is stuff that they know about, mm-hmm. right? This is part of your everyday life. Mm-hmm. You just haven't thought about it in these ways. You haven't had the language to talk about it, but now you do, mm-hmm. right? It can be really empowering for a lot of people, especially if they are um, first generation students or um, you know from a kind of marginalized group to sort of mm-hmm. realize that. Not only is what you know the the places. Not only are the places you come from and the and the people you come from. Not only are they those things interesting, they have academic significance. Right, right? they're worthy of right. study. Right, um, it's a way of attributing value. Yeah, exactly, to exactly. And that's why that's what I really mm-hmm. love about the discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, for virtually everybody I know who's a folklorist, when they stumbled across it, they had this sort of moment like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like ah, oh, this mm-hmm. is it. Finally, you know, this is yeah. the this is what brings together all the things that I've been interested in. I'm interested yeah. in. I didn't know there was a name for it. Right. Maybe at the end here, we could just get your expert opinion and your forecasting of what you think the mountaineer of the future yeah might look like or or actually we have a few minutes so maybe first what is the mountaineer now yeah because i think we're in mountaineer season right yeah mountaineer selection season yes so do you know what's going on with that? Can you give us any inside information about uh, yeah. who's going to be selected you know, as a that, you know, what's really funny is that as long as I've been working on this project, it is still, it might as well be like <laughs> them selecting a new pope, you know? Uh-huh, like, right, there's, or there's, the delegate process exactly, for the, right. the political party. Exactly, right. Like there, there are pieces of it that are public that you see and hear about, right. but then it's like they go into seclusion and mm-hmm. then you don't know. And until, who is they? So they is um, a whole committee of people th- mm-hmm. that selects the mountaineer. It still primarily um, comes out of the mountain honorary, but there are you know other like faculty and staff I think who okay. also serve so on these that are selection committee. Yeah, squares. Yeah, squares. <laughs> but but also students, right? Who okay, are in so the, there in are the honorary? Involved. So there are students involved as well. Um, in a real way or in a sort of token? Again, who I knows? Have no idea because I don't really you know I've, I even though I've asked mm-hmm. I've never been. Mm-hmm privy to that uh and i find that really fascinating right that there are parts of this that are still very secretive um and that even somebody who's working on a topic like this is not allowed (laughs) to know about um i hope you'll write some investigative piece for the (laughs) da (laughs) it'll be it next (laughs) yes like i'll I'll find a mole on the committee to go in there and tape recorder in there yes yeah and figure out what what actually happens there um I mean, yeah, so I think the the cheer-off, which is the most public part of Mm -hmm. it, with the four finalists happened last Saturday, because it's always at the last home basketball game of the season. Um, So I assume that we're going to hear pretty soon Mm -hmm. who the new Mountaineer is. Um, And it'll be interesting to see what the response is, you Mm -hmm. know, particularly if it is the one woman who tried out. well, given our conversation today, I really hope so. I hope so, too. I really hope so, too. And I hope that people will, you know, maybe think a little bit more carefully about how they respond to that at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, it's. I think also the process is much more 
complex than than a lot of people realize that they see the you know people see the cheer off and so they assume that's like the big part of it but actually the process they have to go through is incredibly rigorous they have to write like five essays yeah and then if they make it past that stage they go to an interview stage and i think then they right. go to the then they become finalists because so, it's so much bigger right than just Cheers. Right, exactly. Eliciting I, cheers from right, crowds. Right, and you can understand why the university wants to, you know, have some control yeah. over that if this yeah. is somebody they're going to send out to. They should have multiple Mountaineers. Yeah, and they do have an alternate, right, um, who will go to other events and, and do things like that. But um, but even that, I think, is a relatively recent thing. I mean, I think up until the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years it really was kind of all on one person's shoulders, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. kind of hard to yeah. imagine. Yeah, particularly the university is growing. Yeah, exactly. And the alumni base only gets bigger. Yes, So exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> people it's, it's winter. People get sick and uh, things happen. Right. And, you know, yeah. like, you, you can't do yeah, everything. Why can't there be four Mountaineers? Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, the Leprechaun, I think there are like three or four individuals who kind of take turns mm-hmm. in that role over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we're ready for that. Yeah. I think there's something really important to people about this being a recognizable individual hmm. and a single person. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. so that's well, where we are. But I, I hope you'll get on the committee. Yeah. I feel like you have a case to make for, for why you should be on the committee. Yeah. You probably don't have time for that. Yeah. But. I, it would, I would be interested in it, though. Yeah, I absolutely would. I would love to hear about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I, I feel And that. I could have you back on next year and you could tell <laughs> right, us. Right. To all the secrets yeah. of how the Mountaineer Spill gets chosen. It. Yeah. Well, now now that we've had that conversation, of course, we've guaranteed that I will never <laughs> get put never on that committee. There. So, right. um, yeah. But it would be. Nobody listens to this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll listen to it. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it, it would be, you know, and, and I think that's something the university maybe should consider is opening that up a little bit more, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, or at least making it a little bit more transparent yeah. how that how that happens. Because yeah. I think, you know, there's there's been kind of a history of mm-hmm. people having bad feelings yeah. about the way the final selection went. And I think the university has done a lot when that's happened to sort of tamp it down and yeah. you know, kind of explain there's a lot that goes on that you don't understand but you know you can say that but if people mm-hmm. don't know what that is mm-hmm. then then that's just like adding insult right. to injury and their only vote was their loud how loud they cheered right if they happen right. to get a ticket for the basketball game right exactly right which yeah. is you know not a very representative kind right. of population right yeah well, there's a lot more to talk about, um, but I think we're out of time. Okay. So I really appreciate you coming in here. Yeah. Um, I want to highly recommend the book to Thank people. You. Again, it's yeah. Mountaineers Are Always Free, Heritage, Descent, and a West Virginia Icon. It's out from WVU Press. It's available now. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating read um, with some, some amazing stories and also just a great opportunity for people to reflect on their own Mountaineer identity. Certainly, I had that experience yeah, with good, it. So good. thank you for writing the book. And, thank you. For, and thank you for yeah, coming here. Thank you for reading it. And thank mm-hmm. you for your great questions. Oh. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. <laughs>